I did, yeah. And that should do it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's the Davis. They like to hear the talks, but they don't like them recorded. So good evening to you all. I, I kind of feel in this room that it would be a big advantage if I was like a hammerhead shark or something, you know, and I had one eye on each side of my head. It's kind of hard to hold you uh, all at one time, but... As you might guess, that the topic of the evening is metta. And I'm going to talk about it from a, a number of different angles. I'm going to talk about how it fits into the Buddha's path of uh, understanding and practice. And then I'm going to talk about the method and what's actually going on in the method. What the reason is for doing what we do here and, and how it works. And I'm going to talk about some of the obstacles that can come up in practice and how to work with them. So this will um, help support what we're doing here and give you a framework for understanding it and some uh, tips on tools that you can use to do the practice. And I'll even toss in a few stories. I'm sorry, that, that mic isn't actually working. So it, all, it just, it's just producing noise, which is hard to hear in your work. Can people hear? So let's try that. Let's try. How about folks over there? Can you hear Jean? Yes. If any, if I if I fade out, then just I don't know. Pussy riot. Do something. <laughs> It's not exactly the Orthodox Cathedral, but, you know, just let me know. All right, so how many of you have heard of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path? Okay, so there's some, most of you have some, some familiarity with that. So as you know, uh, the Buddha was a great existential problem solver, and through uh, the process of fully committing himself to figuring out how suffering is caused, he learned through his own direct experience what went into causing suffering, and he kind of reverse-engineered it. He figured out what you would have to do in order for that suffering to cease. And those major uh, insights of how suffering is caused and how suffering can cease are represented in a very simple, bare-bones kind of way in what are called the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And metta is part of this practice, this path of practice to liberate and release the mind. And if you uh, remember, part of what the Buddha did, part of his discernment was to take a look at what kind of actions what kind of mind states led to happiness and well-being for people, and which ones led to suffering and to a further deepening of delusion. And he, he differentiated those things based on 
what they were based in and where they led. Were they kind of leading us uh, on an upward progression towards more happiness and wisdom and well-being and clarity and love and joy? Or were they leading us in the direction of more suffering, more confusion, more grasping? And the way he described the difference between these states, he would use uh, the terms skillful and unskillful. States are skillful or they're unskillful. Or another way he would describe it is states are wholesome or they're unwholesome. So this is an interesting way of putting it, right? So he's not saying bad or good. There's not a shaming kind of thing in it. It's more practical. It's more, well, if this is where you want to go, this is what you would want to do. So it's common. He has a strong <clears throat> element of uh, practicality and common sense in how he approaches things. He's extremely uh, pragmatic. So in looking at some of the, the things that we need to do to liberate the mind, the most concise statement of what those things are found in the Eightfold Path. And if, if you remember, you know, the first step on the Eightfold Path basically is a restatement of the Four Noble Truths and the insights that uh, those have. And then the very next step is what's called wise intention, which is uh, a way of saying overall in this whole system of uh, development of the mind uh, in the direction of freedom, this is the kind of attitude you want to take. This is really what you want to strengthen. These are key uh, liberating attitudes of mind, key intentions. And wise intention is where you find the exhortation to cultivate metta. So wise intention is about cultivating renunciation, cultivating metta, and cultivating compassion. And you also see metta pop up as uh, in part of the description of wise effort, where it's an example of a wholesome state of mind that is uh, leading in the development of wisdom, clarity, liberation, that should be uh, brought into being if we can and strengthened if it's already present in the mind. And in the last step of the Eightfold Path, wise concentration, um, the Buddha exhorts us to develop concentration, uh, certain wholesome states of uh, concentration of mind. And this very practice that we're doing here, the, the practice of metta, is a concentration practice that's designed to concentrate the mind within this attitude and this state of goodwill and friendliness. So last night, Marcia <coughs> gave a wonderful talk uh, about metta, and uh, she referenced uh, uh, the story of how uh, the metta teachings were first given to the monks. And the whole story about them trying to do intensive practice and how they were getting freaked out at 
the activities of uh, the devas who are trying to uh, reclaim their turf. And I'd like to uh, chant for you the actual uh, teaching uh, that the Buddha gave the monks when he told them they should basically do metta. So this, this is an English uh, translation of this. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties, and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from sense-desire, is not born again into this world. That's where it all comes from. The teaching, where it fits in the path. And you could see even in the, the chant itself, he talks about the extension, the cultivation and the extension of this state in the direction of boundlessness, in the di direction of having it 
include every being without exception. And that's the kind of uh, direction we're setting our minds to and the kind of capacity that we're seeking to develop in doing this particular practice. So what we're doing with metta practice is directly cultivating this wholesome and skillful liberative state. And if we were going to take a look at how we're actually doing that, how we operationalize, if you want to put it that way, what the Buddha is enjoining us to do uh, in the Metta Sutta, we'd say we're generating the intention of goodwill and friendliness, of loving-kindness, by using the mind to internally recite and direct phrases of goodwill and loving-kindness towards ourselves or towards particular beings. That's the basic method. So we sit, we get in touch with our felt sense of our own body if we're directing meta towards ourselves, we recite the phrase with the intention uh, to, to offer goodwill and friendliness to ourselves. Or in the case of others, we form a visual image or a felt sense of connection to them if we can, and we direct that same intention uh, using a version of those same phrases that uh, put into words what goodwill, what friendliness, what loving-kindness actually uh, is like. And you can see that this is a progressive practice. So we start at first with ourselves, where at least theoretically that's the easiest place to practice. Although often for us as Westerners, that's not actually the easiest place for us to start, but that's where we start. And you can see that the sequence of practice then next is to go to, go to a benefactor, someone who's done well by you, where it's theoretically... Um, going to be possible for you to feel goodwill towards them. And then uh, the next progression would be uh, to offer metta to someone who's a dear friend. Uh, the next person that you would um, bring into this, uh, this metta practice would be somebody who's a neutral person, meaning somebody who's, you know, you don't really have any strong feelings about f- either for or against. And then you go into uh, some of the more challenging territory, the territory where you're, you're talking about people who are uh, difficult people or in traditional uh, Eastern practice, they'll come right out and say enemy. <laughs> you know, they'll get down and dirty with it. They'll say enemy. <laughs> um, and, and you can see what it is. So we're starting from uh, our base of natural, if you want to call it, uh, inborn capacity for caring and basic goodwill that we feel for those who are closest into us. And and using that as a starting point, our, our natural uh, base of metta, we're gradually pushing out, pushing out, pushing out, pushing out the boundaries until we can encompass, uh, just as the Buddha encouraged us to do, uh, everyone omitting none, omitting none, making it universal. So this brings up some interesting um, things.
things, of course, because there's some people we just don't really like that much. <laughs> and sometimes for good reason. There are people that we don't approve of. This is very true. So what's different about meta from kind of natural human affection, if you want to put it that way, is in the cultivation of metta, it's not about the object. It's not about the being to whom you're um, uh, addressing your metta practice. It's about the attitude of mind, the extension of a particular attitude of mind uh, that encompasses beings without exception. So it's not a picking and choosing mind that's called for. So it's unconditional in that it flows towards others regardless. So we're training this intention, training the strength of the mind, its capacity to be able to stay on that wavelength no matter, stay on that channel, stay on that um, transmission no matter who is in the field. And this is not so easy. Marcia and I both have uh, studied with Pawak Sayadaw, who's a, a great Burmese uh, meditation master. He's a great concentration master. And, and we've both done metta practice with him. And um, the way he would do metta practice, he would go through the same kind of progression that you would that I've talked about from the you know self benefactor friend etc etc, and he was always very careful before he moved us on to the next person um, to really have a conversation with us about whether our meta intention towards uh, the newcomer, the new addition was as strong as it was towards the person we'd been previously practicing with. Right? So it wasn't enough for him to, for us to, to squeak out, you know, some generic goodwill towards somebody. He wanted the new person that was coming into the practice group, you know, whether it was the neutral person or whether it was the difficult person, to be held with the same strength of... Uh, intention for goodwill and kindness and care than that we were holding our most beloved figure with. And so he would kind of test for that. So, you know, if, he, if it wasn't quite as strong as it was for the person before, he wouldn't let you move on to the, the next people. You would stay with whatever that new person was or that new category of person until you could say with sincerity that, yes, I feel, I feel the, the same for them. And that in this kind of practice is called breaking down the barriers, meaning breaking down the usual walls of, that we have about who's inside and who you know, is on the periphery and who is really outside beyond the pale, who's not going to get anywhere near the tent if we have anything to do with it. So this metta is talked about as a gentle rain that falls on the earth, that falls on beings 
without exception, without preference. And in fact, you know, you can feel metta for people that you don't even like, people that you regard as unpleasant or um, for people that you wisely discern are not people that really should be in your life. Sometimes people have the idea that um, with this cultivation of metta and goodwill, um, that including someone within the field of metta means that you lose all capacity to uh, distinguish between who's good for you and who isn't. And that's really not the case. Um, I can remember once going to uh, uh, a weekend with Stephen Levine, uh, who is uh, a very powerful teacher, and this coming up as a question for somebody. And um, he said, it's possible to have... Uh, unconditional love for everyone if you basically cultivate it. But there is no such thing as unconditional relationships. I thought, ooh, that's a, that's a wise one. And it's true, isn't it? I mean, when we're in relationship with people, uh, in order to have the relationships to be healthy, to have, you know, our own um, health and well-being uh, uh, taken care of with, with metta, with goodwill towards ourselves and others. There are certain things that we need in relationships with other people, right? We need a basic kind of respect, a, a basic kind of, um, you know, integrity uh, to have intimate connections with people. If those things aren't present, then you may be able to have metta for people, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they should be close in into your circle, right? So I mention that because that can be a point of confusion for people. So maybe I'll tell a story at, at this point about being able to maintain metta towards someone that you really don't approve of on a moral uh, level. So th this is a, uh, a story that's set probably about 1988. So I've mentioned that because of changes in technology. If you didn't have that bit of information, it wouldn't make any sense to you. But I'll tell you, since you do have that, uh, we can go along. So. For years, I did work around issues of violence. So I was involved with organizing shelters for uh, uh, battered women and their children and working in those kinds of uh, places and, I, and uh, working around other kinds of uh, violence issues. And I, I did that for years. And after my first three-month retreat, I came out and for a number of reasons my job had dissolved and so I found uh, other employment. I was going to involve moving out of town to Portland 
I bought a new car. I was in the process of getting ready to move, get out of town, go to move. So I was very busy and I was living in Seattle at the time. So, and I was driving down in the U district, I was dri driving down 45th Roosevelt area there near the Sunlight Cafe. I was driving my car and as I was driving my car, something about the car ahead of me caught my eye. And then I realized it was like the door, the passenger side door kept opening, repeatedly opening and closing, opening and closing. I thought, that's really weird. And I looked a little more carefully and then I realized what I was actually seeing was a guy who was holding a woman by her hair, punching her and trying to push her out of the car while it was moving. So this was about 45 or 50 miles an hour going on, right? So, and I, and I can remember because I had been on the three-month retreat and my mind had gotten very concentrated. My uh, mind stream was really available to me and I could, I could really see from moment to moment what the mind was doing with this. The first, like, what is it? What's going on? And like, oh my God, oh my God, you know, it's like, and then I watched the, some other things come up in the mind, like, I've got to do something, I've got to do something. Like, well, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And then some anger, like really, you know, getting really angry about it. And then some resentment, like, why me? Why me? Why me? I quit. Why me? <laughs> you know, why, why me? And of course, there are no cell phones, right? So I didn't, you know, that idea went through my mind really quickly. Like, maybe I should pull over, go in the Sunlight Cafe and have them call the cops. Or, but I thought, no. By the time that ever happens, like this, who knows where this car is going to be? And, you know, I, I got to follow them. So I decided, okay, I'm going to follow the car. I'm going to hope for, you know, something that something will happen and I'll be able to do something. And as it happened, uh, uh, he drove a couple blocks. He turned off the, off the main road and pulled into a parking spot by the side of the road. And so I made the turn too. I made the turn too. So he's got the car parked and now, you know, this is escalating in the car. The original activity is escalating. And it's like, oh, you know, I got to do something. But I was like, do I get out of the car? It's like, no, I don't think I want to get out of the car. I don't think that's the thing to do to get out of the car, but I've got to do something. So, you know, just in my mind spontaneously, I thought, oh, I'll box them in. So I pulled my car, my first new car, and the thought went through my mind, like, oh, my new car. Oh. <laughs> my, you know, it's like the mind, all this stuff goes through the mind stream, right? Like my new car. And I pulled my car up at an angle. So he's parked here. I pulled up at an angle like this. So I'm like just about touching his bumper, so basically he wouldn't be able to get out of the parking spot. But I don't quite touch the bumper. And I go, beep, beep. You know, not one of those at the light, one of the polite ones, you know. You know, like when somebody just doesn't see the light turn and they, you know, just need a friendly reminder. Beep, beep. 
And this guy looks up, and I smile at him, and I go, roll down the window. <laughs> roll down the window. <laughs> so he rolls down the window, and I roll down the window, and he's looking at me, and I said, what are you doing? <laughs> and he says, I told her, and, and, you know, I told her never to do it, and she came to my work, and da, 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 da. and I said, sounds like you're really upset. Says, sounds like you've got a problem on your hands here. You know, I would be glad to take her off your hands. I would be glad to help you out with this. You know, she can come with me, and then you know your problem, you'd be okay. Your problem's over. So he thinks about this for a little minute, and then he goes, "Lady, why are you sticking your nose in this anyway?" So the rage comes up again, right? And I said, "And this, this is the meta that comes came out." And I said. I just don't want to see anybody get hurt. And it was just like I stuck a pin in the guy. Right? So, you know, the point of the story is that when we strengthen the capacity for this, we can carry it into places and into situations where otherwise it could be like really, really bad. And really, really bad, at least in part because of how we would be conditioned to contribute more to it when what actually needed is needed as a calm and a settling and an undercutting of what's going on, a, a bringing of a totally different energy into it. You know? And so this is not to say that metta can solve all problems by, you know, just standing there pervading. I mean, it, it, it was a risky situation. It could have been a situation where he could have pulled out a gun and shot me, too. Or shot her, or shot himself, or, you know, you just didn't really know. But I knew for myself, I could not let that happen without intervening. Right? So that was the, that was the motivation of metta. There were all the cross-currents there in the mind of, God damn that, I won't even say what I, the thoughts were about another one of these da 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 das that, you know. It's like, why me? The self-pity, the fear, the resistance, the I don't want to be involved, the, you know, it's like, oh, who could I give it to? <laughs> well, there's nobody to give it to, right? So it, it's all there, but with, with the underpinning of the kind of stability and foundational goodwill that Meta can help uh, help us with. So, you know, far from this being a very um, weak or kind of passive state, it can show up suddenly in very powerful, very strong, very skillful ways uh, and can bring a kind of balance, a kind of peace into situations that where it otherwise wouldn't be present. So let me tell you uh, another story. <laughs> I don't know what happened. She didn't go with you. She declined the ride. 
she declined the ride. Right? So then that was mine to hold to. So that's, there's a side comment to be made there about the importance of metta being universal and including yourself. Right? Self-care. Another story, I have a friend uh, in my home in Barrie who house sits for me and takes care of my dog when I'm out of town teaching. So you probably, you probably know this person, Marcia. Um, you know Venerable Manjing, yep. who's a, a Zen uh, monk around town. Yeah. You know her too? Well, you know, she's, she's quite the woman. She does a lot of hospice work with uh, people in town, helps out at the, uh, does teaching at uh, the Vietnamese temple in Fitchburg and uh, does a lot of things for people uh, in the community in addition to taking care of my dog but uh, and I have her permission to tell this story uh, and in fact when when I said you know can I tell that story sometime she says absolutely she said you know and you can use my name she says you know and even if you know if you meet somebody this is if you even if you met somebody in a coffee shop and you're just talking with them and you think this story would help them you can tell them then <laughs> so I guess that means being here on retreat we can certainly tell, tell the story so she uh, has a heart condition a heart condition that she's just you know coming to understand in its depth that involves uh, some kind of congenital condition where the, the heart has uh, goes into these uh, irregular beats and uh, it's very difficult to, to stabilize it, and you know she's had uh, had one heart attack, and so she's had all these tests to try to figure out what can be done. You know, it looks like the most likely treatment is going to be to do something to one of the nerves in the heart to kind of disable part of the heart. Uh, you know, one of her ventricles is is you know shrinking and atrophying and everything. So there's still you know she's on a lot of medications now. Uh, and the docs are still trying to figure out exactly what kind of uh, version of this she has and what they can do for her. So she was telling me this story about uh, being in the hospital at UMass General, and she was in there for some uh, catheterization test the next morning or something, so she's in there. And she's in the cardiac unit, and she's, she's laying there, she's got all these sensors on her, and you know, uh, her heart's you know doing this irregular stuff, which it often does. You know, she's got the sensors on her, and she works with this by using her breath, right? Using her breath to you know kind of calm the system and calm the system. And she says, and and I was you know sitting up, and I was you know working with what was happening, and all of a sudden there there came this very crushing kind of pain, this kind of crushing pain, uh, and, uh, you know, it, I, I, you know, I had an intuition what it was. So she said, so I, so she hit the button and called for the nurse, and the nurse came in, and basically, because she was connected to all these monitors, basically said, you're having a heart attack. She said, I know, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, 
So then they went and got the emergency room doc, who was also a cardiologist and who, who my friend had happened to meet before. So they come into the room and they, they say, you know, they want her to lay down. She says, even though, she says, usually it works better for me when I'm sitting up. She said, they want me to lay down in case they had to use the paddles. Okay, so they lay her down in case they need to, they take off that set of sensors. They put on another set of sensors. And, you know, they're, it's kind of dicey what's going on here. And the, the doctor comes in, the young Vietnamese doctor she's met before, and the nurse is there, and they're all kind of hovering, hovering around. And she says to them, Well, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate everything that you've, you've done for me. She said, you know, we don't really know what's going to happen here, you know, what's going to go on. She said, you know, it might get better or it might get worse. She said, you know, I could die. And she said, and, you know, I have friends who are EMTs, and I've seen what happens sometimes when, you know, they've been working with somebody and that person dies and they kind of blame themselves. And then it can cascade and they can uh, get on the wrong side of a bottle, the bottle, you know. And I don't want that to happen to you. So I want you to know that, you know, whatever happens here tonight, you know, whether I live or whether I die, I just want to let you know how much I appreciate everything that you've done for me and that you would try to do for me. And I'll always be grateful for that. And I said, did their jaws drop? <laughs> I said, their jaws must have just been hanging Okay? She said, it's not like I, she said, you know, and I felt, I felt fear. She said, I felt anxiety and pain. I'm not, she says, I don't say that those things weren't there. So those would come up and, you know, that I, I would be really feeling that and that would wash through and then there were, you know, there was the physical pain and then there was the, the fear and she said, but really mostly what I felt was met in gratitude. <laughs> okay, so that's the That's the fruit of long-term practice. When the mind is subtle, suddenly compressed, what, what comes up? What comes up in the mind stream as a dominant experience when the chips are really down? What you can access. It doesn't mean that as human beings all, all the rest of this uh, cuts out, you know, that we never experience fear, we never experience anger, we don't experience all these other things, but we have a reliable uh, supply, a reliable san internal sanctuary. The mind has trained itself to respond with care and with love to situations. That that's, that's become the default. So that's where this practice can go. So let's talk a little bit now about the method and some of the hindrances that come up in the process of learning this practice, of developing this, this capacity that we have. So 
Doing metapractice form of metapractice is a little bit like directing a beam of light in a particular direction, right? We're using the active power of the mind with the recitation of the phrases to project these intentions. And having turned on that light in that particular direction, we also start to see things that are at variance to that, things that are cross-current in opposition to that intention. So what might these things be? So how many of you have heard of the hindrances? How many of you have experienced the hindrances? <laughs> you may not know, but you should have your hand up right now. <laughs> all of us, because we all do. So uh, the hindrances are basically uh, states that are states um, that have roots in greed, hatred, or delusion, i.e. they're the kind of states we don't want to cultivate. We don't want to turn up the volume knob on those. We want to mitigate those and, and reduce their, their presence uh, in our mind in the interest of our happiness and well-being. But they are there, and they can be impediments to practice, impediments to concentration. But, here's a really important proviso. If we figure out how to practice with the hindrances, if we learn how to work with them, they actually become part of the practice. And there's no way that you can do spiritual practice there's no way that you can learn to cultivate metta or any of these other uh, wholesome states that uh, are key to our liberation and happiness without contacting the hindrances. If the hindrances weren't present in the mind stream, we wouldn't need to do these practices. Right? We would have no need to do practice. We would only have radiant, wholesome, skillful states. Right? It's their, the, their presence in the mind stream, their conditioned presence in the mind stream. That's the reason that we have to do practices. So we can't jump over them. We can't leapfrog over them. We have to figure out how to uh, address them, work with them. So it's a little bit like the labyrinth. Have you had a chance to walk the labyrinth here yet? If you haven't, you definitely should do it at some point while you're here. So the labyrinth has an outside in entry and then a pathway, a very interesting pathway that ultimately puts you in the center of the circle, in the center of the labyrinth. But the pathway into the center of the circle is very indirect, shall we say. So you'll be walking along the only available path and then you'll get to what seems to be like a dead end like it doesn't keep going in the direction it was going. Then you realize, okay, it's a U-turn. Then you have to turn around. It seems like you're walking back in the same direction you just came from. And in some cases in the labyrinth, when you make that turn, you seem to be moving further and further away from the center. You seem to be in retrograde motion. Oh no, it's in reverse. It's like I'm getting further from what I, where I want to go in the middle of this. And doing any kind of spiritual practice is like walking the labyrinth. It's not linear. It can't be linear. There are too many variables. So you go through periods of time where the mind is pure, 
of the hindrances and is relatively cooperative and you can do these practices and it seems like, you know, your mind's got the, got a hold of it, you got the gist of the thing, you know, you're like, okay, I got this down now. And then it blows up. Right? All of a sudden you're doing the same kind of thing, but all of a sudden you're getting different results, you're di getting different outcomes when these conditioned mind states of the hindrances arise in the mind again, when you thought you had gotten rid of them forever. So it's just like walking the labyrinth. When the hindrances arise, you have to accept that the path is going through these now. Even though it seems like retrograde mo motion, yes, this is really where it's going. Okay, okay, I'm along for the ride. This is what's going on. The Buddha, in all his, in in all the working with Buddhist teachers, or at least <clears throat> good Buddhist teachers, he would very rarely have a teacher tell you, "Well, that's really wrong. That that's happening. That shouldn't be happening." We don't tell you that because we know if it's happening, it's happening for some kind of lawful reason. There are causes and conditions that are there for it to be happening. So it's not a shame or a blame kind of situation when these states are present. It's like a pragmatic, okay, they're here, so how can I bring wise relationship to this? How can I bring uh, a mind that's skillful in relationship to this that can learn to recognize it and relate to it in a way that over time will reduce its strength and reduce its frequency of arising in the mind stream? And that's a whole other piece of method, learning to work with the hindrances. So I'll basically tell you what, what they are, remind you what they are. We've got your sense desire, better known as uh, craving or greed. Um when this arises in relationship to uh, metta and metta, this practice of offering metta can come up in a number of different ways. It can come up in terms of, ooh, I've got the love Jones for that person. You know what I mean? Where it kind of bleeds away from being metta and becomes more of a like attached, I want to get something out of it kind of thing. Um, or it can be come up in the course of practice where you're sitting there and you're, you decide, hmm, I think I, instead of doing this, which has become slightly tedious to me, I think I'd rather think about my last vacation. <laughs> or perhaps I should plan my next vacation and I can probably spin out the remaining half an hour, <laughs> give myself interest, something interesting to do. Sense desire, right? The wanting of something that's pleasant, more pleasant than what the, the present experience is. So that's a biggie. Um, that's a biggie, sense desire in any kind of meditative practice. Then you've got the second heavy hitter, which is aversion. Aversion, meaning uh, ill will, not liking, uh, annoyance, irritation, judgment, fear, um, guilt, shame, you know, all that kind of that pleasant palette of unpleasant states, right? 
that are usually a reaction to uh, some experience of unpleasantness, and then the mind says, uh-uh, don't like it. There's the aversion uh, type words. You better get the hell away from me or I'm going <laughs> to do something to you. That's the more aggressive version of aversion. And then there's the more fear-based, which is, oh, make it go away. I don't like it. Oh, it's so icky. Uh, version of aversion. So aversion and sense desire are the two biggest of the hindrances. And in metta practice, these are actually called, uh, sense desire or desire is actually called, um, uh, attached desire is called the near enemy of metta. Because in some ways it can seem sort of like it. Because uh, there's a like, there's a pleasantness to it. There's a liking, but it's not the meta channel. Channel, and if I have more time later, I'll talk more in more depth about that. And then the far enemy of meta is actually uh, ill will, aversion, and you can see that, right? So if you're working, for instance, with your your meta target, and say it's a neutral person, say you're using your um, the person at your local post office as your neutral person. You're sitting there and you're offering the metaphrases and you're offering the metaphrases and then all of a sudden a memory arises in the mind of having to wait in the line for two hours, you know, to mail your Christmas packages and how when you got to the window she didn't have the right kind of box for you to send it, you know. And then, you know, the mind kind of like spins into that with like, how incompetent the post office is, and you know why is the stamps going up, and you know what I mean. Okay, it's an experience of aversion in regard that's arising in uh, in practice in relationship to the the being to whom you're offering meta. But there can be other experiences of aversion in in doing meta as well. Just the like, I'm so sick of this. I'm really tired of it. You know, it's the same thing day after day, sit after sit. It's the same damn stuff. I'm not feeling anything. I don't see why I'm doing this anyway. I probably should have gone, just gone to the spa. Right? <laughs> that version of aversion. Okay. And the, so those are the two main hindrances. And then you've got your sloth and torpor, which means, you know, low energy where the the mind, you know, isn't really wanting to make much effort. It's kind of a mental thing. And then there's the, the physical part of it, you know, torpor, where the energy is just really low and there might be a lot of sleepiness and that kind of thing. Now, none of these are volitional states, right? I mean, when you're sleepy, you're sleepy. That's why we don't get into the condemnation thing. It's just, you know, it's just a matter of fact. Okay, sleepy is here. <laughs> And then uh, for people who are more on the high energy end, you've got your basic restlessness and worry. You know, well, if sloth and torpor are kind of low energy states and restlessness and worry or like where the, the mind is bouncing around and, you know, you kind of feel like you have ants in your pants and it's difficult to settle down and actually, you know, put the body in one position and have it relax. So it's hard when those states are going on for the the mind to really settle down enough to to you know have the the clarity and the regularity to be able to 
hold the image and generate the phrases and all the rest of that. And then uh, the last of the hindrances is doubt, sometimes called skeptical doubt. So the hallmark of skeptical doubt is when the mind um, asks a series of linked questions that kind of go around and around for which there's no available information, right? So what would an example of this be? Hmm. Well, I wonder if this meta thing is the same as what the Tibetans are thinking about when they're talking about Maitri. But I think that, I don't know, I think that there's maybe a little bit of difference, but I can't remember who said that, but... No, I think that was compassion. <laughs> no, maybe... I don't know, are they doing that first? I, isn't that, aren't they supposed to do that third? But does it make any difference if you do that first or if you do that third? <laughs> but... I'm not sure. <laughs> right? So doubt, right? It just kind of like goes around and around. And doubt's a, a tricky thing because sometimes it, it can masquerade as wisdom, right? Because sometimes there is a legitimate question in there. But it's, it's not, the information isn't available. So a way to work with doubt is, you know, to ask a, a teacher the question. If you can't figure out what the actual question is, which, you know, sometimes it's hard to actually figure out what it is. Or the other thing that you can do with it is to actually just turn the mind towards something that you can know directly. In other words, take it out of the, uh, the habit of using its energies in a speculative, agitating way uh, and actually turn it towards something concrete that it can know, like the feeling of your butt sitting on the chair. Right. Just, okay, this I know. This I know, it's pressure, it's tingling, it's warmth, it's heaviness, it's here, okay. And what, what else can I know? Well, can I know the feeling of the breath? Okay, I can feel the breath. Yeah, that, that feels like the breath. In, out, rising, falling. In other words, to put it on a completely different track. <clears throat> now, in terms of how to, some generic rules for how to work with these hindrances when they come up, the first thing is it's really important to normalize them. Right? If you really believe like you shouldn't be having this happen, that's like a screaming uh, red light that you've fallen into a bad relationship with reality. <laughs> right? You've teed up against it. You're saying it shouldn't be happening. This real thing that's happening right now, it's not. It shouldn't be happening. This reality is not up to snuff. It's not. So in Buddhism, we we skip that whole stage. The issue, it shouldn't be happening. We skip that stage. We go right to what's actually happening. Oh, what a relief. Right? What a relief. Because if we could control what was happening, well, my goodness, we wouldn't be, need to be doing any of this, would we? <laughs> we would just put things under our control. So to normalize its presence, to name it. And it can, sometimes it can take a while to really figure out what's, what's going on. 
You know, you're trying to do the practice, you're trying to do the practice, you keep getting siphoned off, you get siphoned off, or you get sucked into some state, or, uh, and it can take a while to figure out what it is. So if, if you're having the experience, for instance, of repeatedly being brought away from your, uh, the meditative practice that you're trying to do, a first question would be, what am I experiencing right now? And check and see if it's one of these states. Is this a wanting of something else? Is this a you know, rejection or an anger of what's actually happening? Is it like sleepiness or uh, low energy? Is it restlessness and worry? Is it doubt? So if you can even you know, figure out what it is and name it, which is called noting in this practice, noting, where you kind of put the label on of what it is. And then a second thing you can do right at that point is notice whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Now, why is that piece important? Because our conditioned tendencies of mind is to, is to be very... Uh, reactive and very conditioned by the presence of strong pleasantness and unpleasantness. So with pleasantness, we like glom onto it, like we want to take the ride. We want to hold on to it. We want to make it last. We want to make it get stronger. So we attach to it, sense desire, or desire, craving, thirsting, tanha, whatever you want to call it. And with unpleasant, we tend to have the opposite reaction, like it's unpleasant, I don't want to do it. Get it away from me, make it stop, tempt to flee. So by bringing awareness to the pleasantness or unpleasantness of the experience as early as you can, you cut through a lot of that reactivity. It, it turns into less of a mushroom cloud because you're bringing mindfulness, mindful, rec- mindful recognition of what it is, in early. So you're bringing a wholesome state, mindfulness, this receptive non-judgmental, interested, uh, direct knowing to what's happening. You're bringing a skillful state to an unskillful state. That's like providing the adult supervision. (laughs) right? The adult supervision has arrived on the scene in relationship to this hindrance. Okay? And then for for those of you who have some Vipassana or mindfulness meditation practice tools, then you would work with that hindrance in the way you would work with it in Vipassana. Right? Same kind of way. When it's predominant. Now, one difference between doing a concentration practice and doing metta, uh, excuse me, and doing Vipassana practice is that with a concentration practice, your intention is to do one thing and to stay with doing that one thing. Right? So I'm going to draw a distinction now between working with hindrances in metta practice, which is a concentration practice, and how you would work with them if you were just doing if we were here just doing Vipassana practice. Okay? So I'm going to talk to this point. So, in Vipassana practice, or mindfulness practice, as you may have learned it, if one of these hindrances comes up, if it becomes 
you know, what's happening, what what's right there on the top, you would just go with noticing it, right? You would name it, you would note it, you would just go along with investigation of that state, you wouldn't turn away from it, right? You'd go for go with it, you'd bring mindfulness to it, you'd investigate it, you'd deconstruct it in that, that kind of way, but with investigation. And then whatever came up next, as long as there was mindfulness present, and the mind had some collectedness, you would just open to that, and you'd go with that, whatever that was doing, right? That's the basic Vipassana rules, those sound familiar. Okay, with with uh, metta and with concentration, we work with these hindrances in a little bit different way, which is we have a preference for the, the main object. So we have a preference for the continuation of the recitation of the metta phrases. So if the hindrances are there and they're just kind of like there in the background, or they're nipping at your, your heels, or... Um, you know, even if they're somewhat interfering with what you're doing with the main object, i.e. the recitation of the phrases, as long as you can, sit, can continue the recitation of the phrases and aren't totally pulled off by this, you would continue trying to do the metaphrases, right? So you wouldn't yield to, in, to investigation of the hindrances in... Uh, as readily as you would in doing Vipassana practice, right? Because Vipassana has no preferred object. But with this, we have a preferred object. Now, if you're in a situation where the hindrances are coming and coming, and they're continually, you know, they're like at you, like every five seconds they're at you, so like they're, they're, it's more that they're doing more than nipping at your heels, they're more like, you know, chewing out the butt of your pants or something, and they keep doing it. That could be a time, because of how they're continuing in that kind of way, that you want to turn towards them and do Vipassana practice with them until they subside and then you can return. An alternative strategy might be to turn the mind back to an easier person to increase the concentration that's available to you, right? So you might want to regroup by turning back to somebody who's earlier in your sequence. Like, if you've been working with a difficult person, you're having a lot of hindrances come up, you might want to go back to the benefactor, someplace where, you know, the mind might be more cooperative and willing to, <laughs> being willing to express those sentiments of friendliness and goodwill. So you can work in that kind of way. Okay. Now some of the, the other things that, that you can do uh, when the hindrances are strong is you can work to increase their opposites or work to increase the kind of energies that help brighten the mind and strengthen its ability to do the meta practice and to feel some kind of joy. So for instance, if, if you're uh, doing your meta practice and you're having a lot of sadness come up or, uh, um, you know, uh, despair, uh, self-judgment, self-blame, that kind of thing, which can be extremely painful and sometimes disabling, it could be skillful at that point to actually ask the mind to do something else. 
So you might want to do a gratitude practice. Actually going through your life and, you know, doing like a life review and finding things that you easily feel gratitude uh, for or things that are present in your life now that you feel gratitude for. You can brighten the mind by doing something like reflecting on your wholesome qualities. You do have them, you know. (laughs) Reflecting on your wholesome qualities or reflecting on your wholesome deeds. Uh, Really turning the mind towards your basic goodness and reminding yourself in a very explicit way, making it conscious, bringing it into the uh, prefrontal cortex, the facts of the matter, that there actually are many good things about you, that you've done many good things, that this is the truth. You know, it can even be helpful to write them down. Write them down. Take them out. Read them often during the day. Add to them as you have more memories of this come up. Um, and if the mind is getting really graspy, you could practice the opposite by uh, doing some generosity. You know, you might choose to, I don't know, offer extra help to the kitchen or, you know, I don't know, put your chocolate bar out on the, <laughs> break up your chocolate bar and put it out on the tea table or, or something, right? Taking it at an action that's opposite to the energy that's getting in your way that's disabling your efforts. And then uh, a last thing to do would be to actually back off and regroup. You know, you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. And sometimes, you know, the mind can work itself around so that it's in like such a knot and such a tangle. It just needs to like let it go, turn it to a different channel for another while, relax, rest, restore. When it washes through, then then you can start again, right? So these are all ways of working and all strategies that Marcia and I can help you with, you know, guide you in relationship to these, these things that, um, that come up in practice so that you've got some, got some practice tools um, at, your, at hand. But as I said, there's no way... Never been a yogi, never going to be a yogi, ever, ever in the history of the universe that doesn't come into contact, repeated, in-depth contact with these states of mind. And if, if, you, if you learn how to practice with them, you can release your mind. What can I say? You can liberate your mind if you learn how to, how to work with these energies. Because these energies are the obscurations that cover your innate goodness, right? So you need to figure it out and not be discouraged by their presence. So that's probably enough, don't you think? (laughs) All right, so I'll just close with a, a poem. 
This is by Galway Kennel. Or Kennel. Well, I'm, well, I'm guessing is uh, Irish. But he says the bud stands for all things, even those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. And now those who wish can uh, chant with me the sharing of blessings chant. that arises from my practice may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue my mother my father and my relatives the sun and the moon and all virtuous leaders of the world May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support. 
Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.